Hello, and welcome to The B-Spot, a place to talk about life that's almost therapy, but not quite therapy. Again, not quite therapy. So if you are experiencing a serious mental health or substance abuse issue, please seek individual therapy from a licensed therapist. Now, my name is Brian Heller, and over the past 18 years as a licensed therapist, I've noticed that issues like depression and anxiety and addiction, uh, trouble with relationships, parenting challenges, teens, screens, and many other symptoms of being human come up for us all in a variety of ways. So come rejoice in being human. I won't pretend to have all the answers, but I do understand some things and I feel compelled to share them with you. The B-Spot is also a place for you to bring your issues to be discussed. A counseling perspective when you don't have time or money to see a counselor. So come join me at the B-Spot and let's talk about it. Hello and welcome back to the B-Spot. The place that gives you almost therapy but not quite therapy. I want to talk today about another aspect of anxiety. The anxiety around taboo topics. And we're going to hit on a couple of the big ones today and see if we can reduce some of the anxiety around talking about these things by talking about these things a little bit. I don't know how it was or is in other parts of the country, but here in North Carolina, where I grew up, there were two subjects that I was told explicitly that I was absolutely not supposed to bring up in conversation. I came to understand that the reasoning for this was that people were both private and very sensitive about their beliefs on these two topics. Over the course of my life, when I have tried to have discussions in these areas, I've found there are very few people who can do so without emotions taking over. Think about that. We know that emotional reasoning often runs counter to rational reasoning, Yet, rather than challenging ourselves and other people with rational, reasonable discussions, we are made to believe, either explicitly or implicitly, that these topics are still not allowed. Some people become so flustered by rational and reasonable challenge to their belief system that their emotions well up so intensely they lose their ability to be rational. Their emotions shut them down. They walk away from the table, either physically or emotionally. And this is a dangerous state of mind because when we can't accept rational truths or challenges that contradict our set of beliefs, we become unwilling to change and willing to overlook all sorts of negative things as long as our side is winning. I mean, I get it. If I really wanted Kool-Aid in the cafeteria and someone tells me they'll provide it as long as I'm okay with five people going without lunch, I'd feel tempted. Kool-Aid is really good. But what about those five people? Or what if it's ten people? Where do I draw the line of what I will and won't accept in order to get the thing that I want? And here we have taboo topic number one. Politics. Now, I have no interest in pushing any particular ideology or political point of view. This is not a political podcast. 
This is a podcast about rational thought, though, so I will be pushing that. Unfortunately, some beliefs don't allow room for rational thought because they rely on faith. Here we get into the second of the two no-nos, or taboo topics, and that is religion. I will not challenge any particular religion, but I kind of hope to challenge them all, or at least their exclusivity and divisive aspects. I want to challenge them not to tear them apart, but rather to find the commonalities among them all, and the many other philosophies on life. If your faith is important to you, I think that's great and healthy and likely serves as an enduring and supportive guide through life. But when anyone imposes their belief system on another without their consent and chooses to apply the aspects of their approach that line up with controlling what they fear, then I think it needs to be examined. So this is likely why I was warned growing up that talking about politics and religion will make others uncomfortable and will lead to trouble. But one of the benefits of being an adult is that I get to do some of the things that I was always told not to do. So let's talk about it. Let's start with politics. Now, how uncomfortable did that just make you? What happens when I mention the word Democrat? or Republican. What if I mention that guy's name? You know, that guy. Or what if I mention the other guy's name? Did your brain just jump to an us versus them mentality? We are so emotionally invested in our position on the political spectrum these days that just the mention of a word with political associations can elicit a stream of thinking and powerful fears. And as we know, Fears open the door to anger. Anger is rarely, if ever, a primary emotion. Anger is the result of one of those other less powerful feeling emotions, like fear or guilt or shame. When words can elicit powerful emotions, those who are uncomfortable with vulnerability, with those less powerful feeling emotions, are going to express their fears as anger because that feels safer. This is why it's important to have these difficult conversations because I don't know if you've noticed how much anger there is in our world right now, but when I see all that anger, I see fear. And one of the best ways to push through fears is to talk about them, to bring them out into the light to be examined. When we become unwilling to talk about our fears, they grow. And they can morph into hate, either by our thoughts or our actions. So let's start desensitizing ourselves to model for our kids that anything can and should be discussed. That while emotions are a healthy part of the human experience, they rarely leave room for the perceptions of others and must be tempered with logic. And for the most part, that's what we're talking about here. Perspectives based on experiences. It's realistic and reasonable to think that based on the wide variety of influences and experiences among humans, there will be differences in, in perspectives. That's okay. When we stop telling ourselves we're on opposite sides of some bitter rivalry, we'll start looking for solutions rather than enemies, compromises rather than control, 
A person's political position is often fluid and exists on a spectrum. Not all the people on the other side are against all the things you believe. The breakdown of political positions is well represented by the bell curve, which looks a little like a bell, but more like a mountain with equal slopes on both sides. As you draw a line down the middle, you separate exactly one half from the other. The middle 47.5% on each side, while having different points of view and perspectives, are mostly willing to compromise to some degree in order to reach solutions that will work well enough for everybody. The problem comes with that last 5%, which is divided equally between the two sides and represents extreme views and beliefs that are primarily emotion-driven and very difficult to change. So, the middle 47.5% on each side Here's the extreme views of the 2.5% on the other side and feels threatened by the emotional and often unreasonable views expressed. And therefore, they slide farther away from the middle in order to protect what they believe to be critical to their belief system, which they now believe is threatened by the other side. But the 2.5% only represent 2.5%. The problem is that the issues debated by these two and a half percenters are extremely loaded issues with lots of strong opinions and big implications. These are the deal-making and deal-breaking issues for people on both sides that the middle 95% cannot ignore. And now, with the internet that gives everyone a voice and a platform to stretch the contextual meaning of the First Amendment, we all have access to all the opinions all the time. We see it, and we feel offended by it, and we become more entrenched in our position and less willing to be open to rational challenges. The division increases. Another force working against greater unity in our country and in the world is the combination of confirmation bias and the internet. As you may remember, confirmation bias is the result of our desire to be right all the time. This bias causes us to seek out, remember, and believe viewpoints that confirm our previous beliefs, and to discredit, disbelieve, and dislike viewpoints that suggest our preconceived notions are not accurate. And now, with the internet having become a place where anyone can look like an expert by putting on a suit and standing in front of a green screen, it's not hard to find someone who looks or sounds reputable, who's saying what you want to hear, what you want to believe, what you already believe. The internet is the place where news networks have been given creative control with the disclaimer for entertainment purposes only. That argument was actually used successfully in court by a major news network you know which one, to avoid liability for people acting on things that were said by that news network. In court, they actually said that the things they say can't be taken seriously. What? Never before have people been able to so easily find what appears to be evidence to support whatever belief system they have. And so people are less willing to change than ever because they can so easily prove to themselves that they're right. The internet is the place where once the algorithms have determined what headlines keep you clicking, you are fed a stream of news 
that reinforces what you already thought to be true. Don't believe me? Try clearing your internet browser history and signing out of your Google account and then see what your newsfeed looks like. You'll likely see lots of news stories that you weren't aware of because now you're relatively anonymous and the search engines are still trying to figure you out. Search engine companies know that we like to feel good about ourselves. We love to be right. And when we see things that confirm our wisdom, we are more likely to continue searching and surfing and reading and playing and staying hooked in. Which, of course, is the main goal. No matter what your views. Remember, you are the product that the content producers are working to seduce. So it's not hard to see why we are divided. And it's not hard to understand how the contrasting points of view have formed. But are those points of view all nurture based on environment and experiences? Or is there some nature involved there? Interestingly, there's been a good amount of research about whether there are fundamental differences in the brain based on or possibly due to one's political persuasion. And guess what they found? There are. When exposed to risk, liberals and conservatives have different brain structure, with liberals showing increased gray matter volume in the anterior cingulate cortex, which is an area that helps detect errors and resolve conflicts, and conservatives showing greater gray matter volume in the amygdala, which is important for regulating emotions and evaluating threats. In fact, this model is a better predictor of partisanship than the well-established model based on influence and the party identification of one's parents. These results suggest that liberals and conservatives engage different cognitive processes when they think about risk. And that makes a lot of sense if you think about the stated priorities of both sides. On the whole, the research shows this. Conservatives desire security, predictability, and authority more than liberals do. And liberals are more comfortable with novelty, nuance, and complexity. Another major difference between the conservative and liberal perspectives is whether the world's resources are thought of as scarce or abundant. Think about how important that distinction can be in a person's brain as they assess the best course of action in any given situation. It makes sense that conservatives would believe resources are scarce and therefore must be protected by any means, and that liberals, with the belief that there is enough for everyone, would endorse policies that offer more assistance to those with fewer resources and a push for greater equality. It makes sense that some aspects of equality could be thought of as threatening, if one is operating from a core belief that there isn't enough for everyone. If you get yours, will I still get mine? Kind of thing. You know, as we transition here from politics to religion, it's important to note the overlap. Each is its own circle for sure, but where they cross in the, the middle causes a lot of conflict and division that we see in this country. And that overlap sit people with power and strong religious beliefs. Beliefs so strong that those beliefs can keep them from compromise, if that compromise threatens those beliefs. It's easy to see how that could become problematic. Opinions are across the board on what role religion should have in government. 
We say we should have separation of church and state, but is that really possible when the two are so intertwined throughout our history? Belief in God and in Christianity were so central to the foundational ideas of this country and the philosophies and expectations imposed on its people that trying to unravel those things is more challenging than you might expect. You know, while the U.S. Constitution does not mention God, nearly all the state constitutions reference either God or the divine. God appears in the Declaration of Independence, in the Pledge of Allegiance, and on all of our currency. Nearly three-quarters of adults say religion should be kept separate from government policies. When asked if teachers should be allowed to lead students in any kind of prayer, Democrats were twice as likely as Republicans to say that would not be okay. Religious beliefs are often used as justification for other beliefs that impose restrictions on other people. Religion is often the driving force behind major hot-button issues like gender, women's rights, gay rights, human rights. Religion can provide a footing on which to stand and judge the actions and beliefs of others. To assume that one religious perspective has everything correct feels short-sighted. And to use that belief to criticize and control others, to me, works against the goodness of religious philosophies, the positive messages they provide. I'm not saying your religion or any religion is all wrong. I'm just saying that none of them are all right. Because how could they be, leaving so many others just wrong? And it's interesting to me that even with our supposed separation of church and state, religious issues have the power to significantly influence our political choices. It becomes another one of those Kool-Aid situations where people are willing to overlook all sorts of things as long as they perceive their larger needs or values are being met and respected. And what about the role of faith? I mentioned earlier that faith can be a healthy, enduring support for people. But can it be rational? I've often joked that if religion were anything other than religion, it would be classified as a mental health disorder. For better or for worse, it's kind of delusional. Doesn't faith require a willingness to act as if something is true based on belief, not evidence, while also refraining from gathering evidence for the purpose of checking whether it's true? Because checking implies the absence of faith. Faith can be harmful and even scary to those who have it and those who don't. A philosophy professor at Berkeley, Laura Buchak, has an interesting perspective on this. She says the way that religious faith is sometimes talked about in our larger cultural conversation can be harmful to everyone who is trying to find out the truth in religious matters and how they should live their lives. There is a naive idea that faith requires believing against the evidence or in the absence of evidence. When this idea is adopted by atheists, it can allow them to dismiss all religious claims, all religious faith as irrational by definition, without considering what the evidence is for any particular religious claims. When this idea is adopted by religious people, 
it can allow them to think that believing against the evidence is a virtue, which is harmful to the pursuit of truth. It can also be harmful psychologically to try to believe something you think you don't have evidence for. But can it be rational? Gleb Sipersky talks about there being different starting points from which perspectives grow. The starting point is different, he says. Secular people start with the faith that they can trust their sensory experience. Religious people start with the conceptions of the divine. Yet, after each starting point, both seek to proceed in a rational, logical manner. In his opinion, what religious people and non-religious people fear about each other is the same thing. The non-religious look at the religious and say, God could ask them to do anything. How scary. And the religious look at the non-religious and say, without God, they could do anything. How scary. What do you think? Is he right? I think it makes sense to a point because belief or lack thereof is so deeply ingrained in who we are because it ties us to our childhood and reminds us of our most powerful influencers, our most powerful memories. And there's usually plenty of emotion there. So many people are easily threatened when challenged on their beliefs. They desperately want to believe that they are the ones who have found the truth and they find questions or criticisms threatening. I think we all know on some level that there are many more questions and theories than facts when it comes to religion or philosophies on life. And so there is always a chance we could be wrong. That can be a scary proposition, especially if your life and your understanding of life are built around your religious beliefs. But should those religions or philosophies influence the rules and laws imposed on everybody? Or only on those who believe in those religions or philosophies? Look, I'm not here to challenge your political or religious beliefs. I'm here to challenge your discomfort talking about these things. I'm here to challenge the notion that these things are better left unsaid, unexamined, hidden in the dark recesses of your mind, never to be challenged or explored because you're afraid you just might be wrong. That's why I'm trying to help by telling you that your religious philosophy is likely both right and wrong. Every human everywhere since the beginning of time has been trying to understand what in the world we're doing here, how we live, why we die, what happens when we die, how we exist in the universe, uh, how we can coexist among each other. These fascinations have led to the formation of the world's religions. Religions also help maintain social order which is important for large groups to exist peacefully and for power structures to remain in place. And we all know that power structures like to remain in place. I get why we have religions, and I'm not even saying we shouldn't. I think that religious beliefs can be great, unless they are used as justification to restrict or violate another person's right to liberty, to freedom to make their own decisions. We each have the right to make our own decisions about most things, up to the point where it impacts others. It's the whole stay in your lane idea. 
As long as the spikes from your wheels don't come into my lane and create danger for me, party on. Religious principles and beliefs can't be used as an excuse to violate the rights of others. As I mentioned earlier, I'm well aware that these are sensitive subjects, and I appreciate your willingness to hear this discussion. We must talk about these things, and I hope you go out and have these conversations to help us all work through our discomfort. The intention behind talking about these issues should not be to change people's minds. The intention should be to gain an understanding of their perspectives, to open the dialogue so that we can all remember how much more similar we are than different. If hearing me ramble on these topics has offended you and you're still actually listening, please know that my intention is not to offend, but rather to push the barriers of discomfort around important issues that need to be discussed so that we can work toward repairing the spirited divisions around these topics. Ultimately, we really are all part of the same team here. We're all making the decisions that we believe will work best for us and the people that we love. I guess maybe the problem is we don't love enough people. Thanks for joining me for another session of Almost Therapy, but Not Quite Therapy at the B-Spot. Remember, you can email me with any thoughts, questions, concerns, or any issues that you would like for me to discuss. That email is bhellercounseling at gmail.com. If you are wondering what I'm going to be talking about in the next session, you aren't alone. I'm wondering as well. Guess we'll find out together. Until then... Be well.